another manifestation or introduction of Jesus Christ in his post-resurrection glorified body uh, on the earth. It is not necessarily the last one if you want to include the revelation of himself to Saul on the way to Damascus. We could also include that. Um, But certainly here we have the last one we associate with him before his ascension. And while we often contend that that John doesn't really describe the ascension, I think we're going to be taking some time in in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, to really evaluate that, and as Jesus Christ talked all the way back into the uh, early hours of that first resurrection, uh, Lord's Day, uh, of that he is ascending to his Father, he is going to the Father. And we're going to see what is going to be brought to us by means of that ascension. But we have John adding an uh, event and I, I, use a, I say that very carefully um, because, and cautiously because when I say adding event, many people think that the next chapter, chapter 21, the last chapter of John, is, is an addendum. It has been added either by some other author uh, later on or um, by John himself uh, in, in one version of this book. Uh, the difficulty with that position is that we have no copies, that's zero copies of God's Word anywhere in all of time that we don't find this chapter associated with this book. And that goes even back to some of the earliest commentators uh, that we have record in, the, the, the pre-Nicene fathers. Even they reference some of these verses in this chapter. So even in their copy of the Gospel of John, this chapter existed. And so for John, we might say, well, why is he adding this on? It seems like the end of chapter 20 is a good place to stop when he says that, you know, I've written these things that you may believe. And so we have written about uh, what we've witnessed. I've written that uh, sufficient for you to believe that you may have life in his name. And certainly we can look at verse 30 of chapter 20 and associate it with somewhat of the end of chapter 21 Uh, It says, truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. And then at the end of 21, of course, is a statement saying in verse 25 that there are also many other things that Jesus did which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. And so we see the correlation there. We say, well, uh, there seems like we have two endings to this book. Uh, But really... We do not, and we're going to explore chapter 21 for several weeks um, because of the necessary impact of this chapter, not as a a quick addendum to talk about some things he forgot, but rather associating them with things that are included in the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that John doesn't necessarily include, but but we have something Uh, that is very important in their place and that I believe are built upon those records of the Great Commission, of the Ascension, and things like that, that we also see in the early chapter of Acts. And so uh, we're going to develop this very carefully and take our time. And hopefully you don't feel bogged down by that, uh, including next Lord's Day when we We're not even going to get through the first event today. So we're going to conclude that next Lord's Day. Uh, So we're going to look at the presentation of Jesus Christ by the Sea of Galilee. But we're not going to get to the actual meal until next week. Uh, And again, because there's substance here. These aren't just the little historical, little neat little things John adds on. They are important. They're important to John to communicate uh, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in his life to his people, uh, to the original readers, and to us. And so we won't want to just skim through them, uh, saying, well, Jesus Christ is resurrected, and these are just a few events that he needs loose ends to tie up. That is not what's going on in this chapter. These are significant events that we want to discuss and, and let them impact us. Remember, we are talking about John trying to move people from believing on an immature level 
and perhaps even a non-salvific level. That is that you can believe in Jesus and not be on your way to heaven. Uh, you might say, can that be? Yes, there's an immature level of belief that is insecure. Um, and Jesus Christ keeps talking about that. And John has been referencing that, that you believe in Jesus, in the, in the works of Jesus Christ. But as soon as you really delve into the teaching of Jesus Christ, you start to bristle. And perhaps even then you can adapt yourself to some of the teaching of Jesus Christ. But then you want me to actually view Jesus as my God. And we might hesitate there and not go into that level. And the question is, at what point do we tell people, well, you're on your way to heaven? Well, too often, our response to people is, you're on your way to heaven because you pray the sinner's prayer because of this immature belief. And God calls us something much deeper than that before that uh, confidence can be given to us that, well, I am a citizen of heaven. Now, this past week, I got a call, and I never know. Sometimes as a pastor, you get strange calls. Uh, I got a call, and this is, well, I was like, okay, and uh, from Eunice Johnson's son, okay? Um, and uh, she's, if you don't know, Bud and Eunice Johnson have preached here before when we were, where were we? We were floating around the Mediterranean somewhere, and they took care of my four kids. My four kids almost killed Bud while he was here, Pastor Johnson. Um, but uh, they were gracious to do that. And we're, we're here multiple weeks. So he's gone on to glory. Eunice is in a nursing home. So her son, Randy, calls me uh, and says, I have a coworker whose father is from Shiprock. And he is in Albuquerque. And, and telling him as medical, because it's not COVID, but it's something else. And can you go visit him? Because no one can get there. And so I, I don't know his spiritual condition. All right. And so I show up at the hospital. And, and yes, pastors still can get in. Apparently, Loveless, at least, they let me in. Uh, and uh, I, I'd love to add a lot about my interaction with the staff at the hospital. Um, most of them were shocked that I was there. And one gal actually broke down and cried in the elevator and was like, I can't believe it. Wanted to, I think she wanted to hug me, but no, I didn't do that either. The chicken wing thing is not for me either. So shake my hand, shake my hand. But um, uh, went into it. I, I, I don't know his condition. And, and, and I said, well, you know, they said you went to church somewhere. And so, um, you know, his hearing aids, batteries were gone. And so I had to sit there and yell at him. And that was so that the whole ICU could hear me. And, um, and he just snapped up and he, and he started sharing his testimony. And it starts out, and I'm like, okay. And he's like, he's like 43 years ago. And he shares his testimony just, just like it happened yesterday. And he, and he shares that all, and, 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 but he said the word, well, I prayed this sinner's prayer, this guy told me to pray. And I said, that's great. But you went a lot farther than that in 43 years, haven't you? Oh, yes. And I'm, no, I know I'm on my way to heaven. I know where I'm going if I don't leave this bed. And that calmness and that assurance, not really on a, on a sinner's prayer that day, but on the manifestation of his life long now, well, 43 years, half his life. He's 85 years old or something like that. So half his life of of following after God and growing in him. And what a great time to be able to just praise the Lord with him, pray with him. Um, but this is what John wants to see happen. He wants to see us going from, from this very immature believing, which is okay, you got to start somewhere, don't you? But if that's all we have, then I'm not going to confidently say, see you in glory one day. Uh, we, we dare not do that, and too many have done that. Oh, you pray the sinner's prayer, let's take you to 1 John 5 and tell you that now we know that we have eternal life. Well, 1 John 5 is the last chapter of 1 John. And it says, by this you will know. I write these things that you may know. Well, what things did he write? 1 John chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, which talked about obedient walk with God. Um, of maturing faith. 
that we learn these things. And so this is what John's concern is, that we go from faith to faith. And so as we've looked at the events of that first Lord's Day and a second Lord's Day, I would contend, uh, some say it happened on a Monday, but uh, most Hebrew timekeeping includes the day you're on. So when they say eight days hence, it, today is one, not zero. Tomorrow isn't the first, and so that would make it the, Jesus' second appearance being on the Lord's Day as well. And so for two Lord's Days in a row, they met with Jesus, uh, and now we have a third uh, description here of his in, interaction with uh, some of his 12. I say some of them because only a few are listed here, and not all 12 or all 11 at this point. And, uh, but we have had these interactions, and what we've noticed over and over again is how incredulous his followers were of his resurrection. They didn't believe. I thought you were a gardener. I thought someone stole your body. I, we thought all these things. We, we, we didn't believe. And the whole purpose of John is to move us from disbelief to belief, and he is communicating that this had to happen in their lives too. The apostles weren't above this process. This process was necessary for them. And so it's, I, I assume, therefore, it's necessary for all of us, for each one of you, to move from immature belief to the most mature belief. And that's why we meet together and study God's word. Because it wasn't in, the, in their eyes what they saw. They saw the empty tomb, but they did not believe. It wasn't in the testimony of others that they put their trust um, because they didn't believe that. Uh, and, and they didn't believe their own eyes. They didn't believe the testimony of others. And when confronted, you know, Thomas uh, was like, I have to put my hands on him. Uh, well, fortunately, he didn't get to that point because of the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, I know what's in your heart. And that was enough. And Thomas responds, uh, uh, you're my Lord and my God. But I want you to notice that their confidence is not in these things. And we've spoken about it multiple weeks, that their confidence is in the revealed word of God. This is when they begin to understand and begin to engage with the concept of the resurrection, the power that it represents. Now, some weeks, some time has gone by, is the evidence here in chapter 21. Uh, we don't really know where the second event happened that we looked at last week. I didn't really talk about that. Uh, we don't, we kind of, the, the language kind of sounds like they were still in the house in Jerusalem, but uh, we know from other scripture that they were instructed to go back to Galilee and to wait there. And so the Thomas event that was the second Lord's Day may well have happened in and around Galilee somewhere. Uh, but by 21, we know that we are uh, at the Sea of Galilee, called the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, we have several names for this, depending upon who you want to talk to. The region uh, around this lake. It's in, in Israel, weird things. You know, you have an ocean that's a sea. That's the Mediterranean. You have a lake that's a sea. And, uh, and so seas can mean a lot of things in that region. And so you have uh, a region called Galilee, uh, but you'll hear it called the Sea of Gennesaret. Uh, and there are some older terms in pre-Israeli times for this. Um, we'll Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, all referring to the same uh, <laughs> piece of water. Uh, Tiberius would have been the most recent one. It would be the most Roman one. Uh, there was a town that's still there that was founded on the shores, the western shore of Galilee, uh, the Sea of Galilee, that was named after Caesar Tiberius uh, during the Roman period. And so it well, took a little while, but eventually the sea became known as the Sea of Tiberius. So we're going to move ourselves back up to Galilee and this shouldn't bother us, and it's not the, the disciples are somehow not where they're supposed to be. They were told to go back to Galilee and to wait there. Uh, are they going to be back in Jerusalem by Pentecost? Certainly. Most Israelis were going to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost. Uh, kind of like Passover. It's one of those high times that, that if you can make it to Jerusalem, you want to be there for Pentecost. Uh, and that's coming. But remember, Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. 
And so we have uh, a period of time there that uh, they are told to go back up to Galilee, and that's where they are. So they're being obedient to God's word, uh, which I think is a great testimony to the fact that they are, at this point, believing in a resurrected Lord. And I want to share that because many people have painted some of the things that happened in this chapter as though the disciples were still in this uh, unbelieving state. And I don't see that in this chapter. I see rather that they are, are needing some encouragement. They need some strengthening. And I believe they need some preparation for what is about to happen. They're not quite ready for Pentecost. And hence we have another conversation. Yes, they know there's a resurrected Lord. They have seen him multiple occasions. Uh, yes, they understand some things about their mission. That's been communicated to them every time we have an encounter between a resurrected Jesus and his disciple, whether that's a woman or a man, uh, it always ends in a commission. Uh, you need to go tell others. You need to go to, so Mary Magdalene, you need to go tell the, the, the 12. You need to go tell them uh, that I'm risen. Uh, and to the 12, you need to go do these things. And so that has been a, a regular constant in this. So they have an idea of that, but the logistics of how it occurs, uh, they're, they're not really up on. Uh, so they're told to go back to Galilee. They obey what they're told. And here we find them uh, there at, the, at, at Galilee. And John wants to talk about this encounter with the resurrected Lord. And so we have in verse 2 a listing of who we're involving. We're not involving all of them. Um, and, and it's kind of interesting because two of them are specifically unnamed. So we can conjecture who is and isn't there. Uh, and we can, but here's who we know is there. We know Simon Peter's there. Right? This is his home. Uh, Thomas, called the twin, uh, or Didymus, if you have it in your King James, uh, and uh, Nathaniel, and Thomas is an important one, right? And this is the only gospel that really focuses in on him. So he missed the second one. I'm sorry, he missed the first one. He was there for the second, but he's also there for this third visit. And then we have Nathaniel of uh, Canaan in Galilee. And this is, we haven't really uh, engaged Nathaniel for a while. Uh, and so he, of course, was also kind of a skeptic. Remember when he came to Christ and it says, well, can anything good count out of Nazareth? That's the guy who said that. And so we had that engagement earlier in this book where Jesus Christ spoke to him, uh, revelation, and he says, oh, I, I guess something good can't come out of Nazareth. And, and he begins to follow after Jesus Christ. And so we have him there. It's interesting that two of probably the most skeptical of the, of the 12 are uh, included specifically by name in this encounter. The fourth and fifth ones are the uh, Zebedee boys. And uh, you'll notice in your copy of God's Word that you probably have sons in italics. That means it's not in the Greek. We add that for clarification. All we have is a plural of Zebedee. The Zebedees were there. And so um, we know who the Zebedees are. The Zebedees are James and John, also known as the Sons of Thunder, um, is their nickname. So they go together a lot, and that would uh, be uh, John himself, the author of this book. He never names himself or his brother in the book. They just don't, they always, he always references to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. Not that he didn't love the others, it's just how he references to himself. Or if it's him and his brother, it's the, the Zebedees, the sons of Zebedee. And so we have those two there, James and John. So we're, we're up to five, and then two others. And uh, it's not important for them to give us their names, and, uh, and whether some contend, well, he can't remember. Uh, I'm pretty sure that if he needed to remember, God would have brought it to his memory. We believe in the inspiration of Scripture, so it's not just an old man that can't remember the other two guys that are in the boat with him. Um, it is, is, I think the, the fact that we have them unnamed helps us to uh, just move on instead of trying to focus on who wasn't there and why weren't they there. Uh, we, we don't know who wasn't there, and so we don't need to conjecture there. And by the way, um, we're going to be dealing with conjecture a lot through this chapter. 
because people conjectured meaning into it that I do not think John intended to try to get more out of it than really what's there, uh, interestingly enough, and then ignore what is there. And so we want to focus in on what we know instead of what we can conjecture. So we come to verse 3, and here's where the conjectures start. Peter is sitting there, and he says to the other guys, sitting around, says, I'm going fishing. That's not an odd thing, really, because he grew up as a fisherman. He's very likely the oldest of all the disciples, uh, is the evidence, among the oldest, if not the oldest. And he, he just makes a statement, I'm going fishing. Uh, Peter is a man of action, and I can appreciate his antsiness. Uh, you're told to go to Galilee and wait, and technically Galilee is a region, not a specific one location. And actually, um, he's still being obedient out on the lake. That is part of the region of Galilee. So don't think that he's just given up on Jesus doing anything with respect to the promises uh, of this communication, of this instruction period. Um, nor is it that Simon Peter is somehow giving up on being a disciple of the Lord. That's often been uh, spoken to. And, and people say, oh, he's going back to being a fisherman. He's, and, and God told him, I'm going to make you a fisher of men, not a fisherman. And, and they, again, put uh, themselves into the, the, the place of understanding Peter's motives. And the Bible just doesn't do that. And this is going to be very important. You will never see Peter condemned for this. In fact, it is this exact just inclination to go fishing that is the precipitant for what is going to happen in the morning. Is that here we are, uh, probably in the late afternoon, early evening, and Peter just says, I'm going fishing. We can wait out there and fish as easy as we can wait in here and sit and stare at each other. And I have no problems with that. There's no evidence he's saying, I'm giving up on Jesus. I'm going to go become a fisherman again. And, and uh, he's just uh, going to stay busy. And in fact, I would contend that this is a godly thing to do. And there are, there are too many that are sitting around their hands when God's word says that, that uh, particularly for men, is that from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, we should be engaged in activity. We should be at work. That this is when you work and earn a living, that this physical activity is what God calls us to. It is part of our makeup. It is part of our worship, uh, particularly, uh, and, and by the way, women, I'm going to focus on men because I'm talking about work, labor, not that women don't work, okay? Proverbs 31 is your reference point. That woman gets up before the sun and is still up after the sun. So yours is even a longer day. Okay? So you read Proverbs 31. I'm just going to tell you what the expectation is of men. And that is that you're going to labor working with your hands what is good. And this is pleasing to God. This is an obedient thing to God. And the idea that the disciples are supposed to go up there and for, what, six weeks sit around and do nothing is ridiculous. It runs contrary to God's word. It would put them in a position, really, of, of dereliction. Uh, uh, what are they going to do, sit around and do nothing and have the women wait on them? No, we, we need to participate in the life that is going on around us. And yes, it is an honoring and godly thing to go out there and work, to earn a living. In fact, you're required to do that so you could take care of your own and have some left over. Now, what's the some left over for? Now, I'm a preacher, and you're expecting me to say, well, to put it in the offering box. But that's not what God's Word says. What God's Word says, the some left over is to help others also, beyond your family. You can help others also. And we try to facilitate that for you by sending some funds around the world to different ministries, but that doesn't preclude you from doing that yourself when you see someone in need, real need, which is hard to find in the United States, to tell you the truth, okay? Um, I, I just have a hard time helping anybody out at the corner that, um, has a cell phone in their hand. 
because um, I don't have a cell phone, so uh, I keep telling people that. We have a cell phone, so I keep saying it's my wife's. I just keep blaming her. Uh, but we have one, but uh, if they can afford a cell phone, they probably don't need my assistance too much. So we have this instruction about work. And so what Peter does is he's there waiting. He says, I'm not here to sit on my hands. This isn't right. This isn't really uh, healthy. And it's not. It is unhealthy not to have labor with your hands. To work what is good. From the rising of the sun to the setting of sun, Bible says. Which is really hard in July and August, isn't it? Because the days are really long. Um, it's a lot easier in the wintertime because the days are shorter, right? And so the rising of the sun, setting of the sun, oh, I don't have to get up till, I don't know, what is it, 8, 7.30 in the winter? After the time change, it's like 9 or something, isn't it? You can tell I don't get up in the morning, so I have no idea what, what time the sun rises. No, that's not true. <laughs> it was just before 6 today, just by Peter's going to keep busy. He's obeying God. He's gone from Jerusalem to Galilee. He hasn't abandoned the post. Jesus Christ told him to do that. Wait for me in Galilee. He is obeying God's word in terms of being a productive person. I see no evidence here that he has expectations to abandon being a follower of Jesus Christ and going back to his old occupation. But if you have a skill and an experience in life, in the area of work, that's what you do. You do what you do. And he's a fisherman. I expect him that if he wants to contribute to what's going on, the best way for him to contribute is right in his wheelhouse, and that is fishing. So he just says, I'm going fishing. And look at everyone's response. We're going with you also. We know James and John were fishermen, um, Nathaniel likes to sit under trees the last time we saw, but what he did for a living, we're not real sure. Uh, but these guys are like, we'll go with you. We don't want to sit around either. Waiting does not require inactivity. I am waiting for the Lord's return, but you don't see me sitting on a stump somewhere drinking a lemonade. Rocking chairs, porch swing, whatever it is. Because waiting does not mean inactivity. I can be waiting for something and doing something while I'm waiting. I believe that is what is referred to as redeeming the time. Now, you think redeeming the time means multitasking, and I think multitasking is a waste because you can never... I do one thing, I try to do it well, and then I move on. That's my creed of my work ethic. Okay, I want to do one thing, I want to do it well, and then I'll move on. And, um, But... Inactivity is not waiting. I know they call it a waiting room. I hate waiting rooms. You guys like waiting rooms? You have nothing to do. So they put magazines there for you to read, but they're like 100 years old, and, and they're always women's magazines, which I don't know what's the point of that. I don't care what's the fashion um, at all. And, and I don't really get my recipes from them anyway because I like meat and potatoes. So you don't have, there's hardly any new way to do that. Um, and so... <laughs> that I would like. They're going to be out there busy. They're going to work. I see no evidence that they are abandoning their walk with God, that they are being disobedient, that they are giving up on Jesus. All those are things we have conjured up to produce sermons uh, out of a text that doesn't communicate that. Rather, I see men being obedient to an instruction, being obedient to a general principle, and staying active as they wait, and redeeming the time because the days are evil. And it's shameful that if we get so tied up in the Lord's return, which I am there with you 100%, I'm right there, the Lord's return is, is right on the edge of time. That doesn't mean that I give up my activity because of that. I'm still waiting, I'm anticipating, I have great anticipation that things are going to be quickly happening in the months before us, but I don't stop everything I do. I haven't, I, I'm still planting seeds, I'm still watering, I'm still hard, I'm still anticipating that I need to get through the winter. Why? 
Because while I'm waiting, I want to be active and obedient to the principles of God's word. Even if my wait might seem short. And certainly is shorter now. We still want to be there. And so they went out. It says, they all agree we're going to go fishing. Uh, and uh, they're taking Simon's lead. They go out, immediately got into the boat. And that night, they caught nothing. And again, people have said this is because they weren't being obedient. God wasn't blessing them. That doesn't say that. In fact, the catching nothing is purposely setting it up so that Jesus Christ could do a miracle that morning. It's kind of like the, and I wish people would just study God's word better. Why are you putting this accusation against these, these disciples when we've already resolved that in the life of Christ, when they said, who sinned, this man or his parents? Because he was born blind. And what was Jesus' response? Neither one of them sinned. The man was born blind for one simple reason, that is so I could give him sight today and glorify God. But we always associate this uh, maybe it's our American philosophy that that certain amount of work should always produce this amount of success. Uh, but but that well, there's this futile activity. All no, that was setting the stage for what was about to happen. That their capacities that were well honed, they had they were fishermen professionally. They made a living at this. They knew when to fish, and most fishing happens from sundown to sunrise, and you like to come in on your boat at sunrise so you can sell your fresh catch at the port in the morning when everyone's looking for the day's catch. They knew when to fish. They knew how to fish. There is no doubt about that. So why did God permit, not permit them to catch any fish? Because he's setting the stage for what's going to happen in the morning. And there's frustration certainly among them, perhaps. But remember, this isn't their livelihood anymore. That is, their hope is not in fish anymore. That's not what, this is about us being active and fulfilling the principles that we see in God's word, along with the instruction to wait here in Galilee uh, for the Lord and so out there, and, and God is setting a stage for something wonderful to happen, and it's not very much unlike the several days they spent in Jerusalem waiting and not knowing what they were waiting for, because they didn't really believe in a resurrection. And at least now we have them out there active and, 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 and going about life, believing in Jesus Christ, being obedient to him and to the principles God wants them to be engaged in. And so the idea that they caught nothing is evidence that they are in a state of disobedience or a lack of blessing is an American concept being dumped into this verse that simply isn't there. God has set up a, an environment where he can come in and demonstrate the power of the resurrection that he is their Lord and their God. And let's just allow that to settle on us that perhaps one of the greatest reasons that we so, see so little of God's work is we have so little a need. Because in the midst of our waiting and in our activity, if we don't produce this product or this success or this uh, benefit, uh, that, well, God isn't in this. But you don't know. You don't know. Because the fact is that you may be waiting for that desperate condition where we're realizing in my own strength, in my own wisdom, in my own experience, in my own expertise, I am not sufficient. And then God can come along. When we are weak, then he can be strong. When we are humble, then he can lift us up. And so we do not just praise God for the supply. We don't just praise God for the exaltation, for the lifting us up. We should be praising God for the circumstances that brought us to humble ourselves that we might be lifted up. We should be praising him for the need that was created that he might supply it. That he might receive the glory. We always want to praise him for this end of the equation and never for the beginning of this equation. We don't want to praise him while he's in the tomb. 
only when it's empty. But we saw on that one sermon on what was going on while he was in the grave. That was an important time. Maybe not to the disciples that were on the earth and in despair, but it certainly was to the people who were in Sheol. When Jesus descended into Sheol to take captivity captive, remember that? So just because it wasn't wonderful to you doesn't mean that wonderful things weren't going on. And in your desperate condition that Jesus Christ had abandoned you, he hadn't. He says, I won't do that. Love you too much. But if we never have a need, how can we ever glorify him for meeting one? We have such a comfortable life in this country. And we have for decades, for generations, that we don't often have opportunity even to see Jesus Christ meet needs in powerful and wondrous ways. And here, the disciples are out there. uh, They're fishing. It is an empty net, empty net, empty net, empty net, empty net, empty net. All night long, they're drawing up this net, and it's empty. They're drawing up this net, and it's empty. They're drawing up the net. This is the prime fishing times. And morning is coming. That's verse 4. When morning was coming. Uh, this is the pre-dawn. This is just at dawn. This is just, the sun hadn't really come, um, but the light of, of its proximity was there. The morning, it, the, the verbiage here is, is, is coming. It's, it's on its way. Morning's on its way. Jesus was on the shore. And the Greek, again, that John uses here is really interesting because he, <laughs> it's not that, we haven't listed Jesus stood on the shore but it is an active coming onto. He, he came into the shore. That is uh, kind of like where he just came into the, the room with the doors closed. He just came in. It, was just, it wasn't that the disciples weren't paying attention. Jesus was there the whole time, all night. It's that Jesus just was there. He just came in onto the shore. Uh, where he came from, no one knew, and, and he just came in, and there he was, standing on the shore, and... The disciples, again, in verse 4, did not know that it was Jesus. They still don't have this resurrected form in their minds as being Jesus. In addition, you're in this where there's just the very beginning of light. And he's some ways away, about 100 yards away. Uh, The boat, we know, is about 100 yards from shore, Jesus on the shore. And so... Uh, pre-dawn, they just see a guy out there. They don't really know it's Jesus, um, but it's uh, enough for us to yell. And if you think 100 yards is a long ways to yell, you've never been on the sea um, because you can hear a long ways on a piece of water. Um, Talk to your sailors. That would be Bill Roberts. Any other sailors? But he sailed under the sea, so he wouldn't know anything about this. He was a submariner. So... You get on that lake, and it's amazing. You just hear things for, that's why foghorns work so well. Uh, It just stays right above the water, and you can hear. So Jesus Christ on the shore, he calls out to them, and uh, they don't recognize his voice either. And he says, children. It's in the masculine, plural. Uh, So really, it's boys. Hey, boys. Um, Laddies, there, we'll put it in, in from my heritage. Hey, boys! An older man talking, or a man with authority talking to, uh, it's a term used that you would talk to your uh, young men that, that you have employed, you would talk it to your, to your slaves, you, you'd use this kind of terminology, but uh, John's going to pick up on this phrase because he's going to use this, my little children, when we get to 1 John. When John starts writing his letters, he starts saying, my little children. He says, hey, children, have you any food? Essentially, have you caught anything? Have you had any success? And they answer him, no. Now the question is, did Jesus not know that they had an unsuccessful night? Well, he did. But he's reminding them of that. Just what a fisherman wants to hear. How'd it go? Bad. 
Jabbies? No, we can't catch anything. This guy on the shore is rubbing it in. And so we have Jesus Christ taking this opportunity, having reminded them and having communicated that there is no success out there to cast the net one more time. Cast the net one more time. Now this goes against conventional wisdom, right? What is conventional wisdom? Conventional wisdom is the sure sign of insanity is what? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, right? You guys ever heard that? Okay, I, I grew up hearing that, uh, and uh, usually because I'm hitting my car, and it still won't run, you know, and I hit it more, and certainly one of these smacks, it's going to start running, and my dad would say, you know, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results is insanity, um, unless you're dealing with God. But these guys don't know they're dealing with God. Whatever is in them, and some have said, well, sometimes someone from the shore can see a school of fish from the shore that the fishermen can't. And if that's something, if that's a real thing, I have never experienced that, ever in my life, except for once. And that's when there was a feeding frenzy that was off a distance, and I could, you could just see the sea frothing up and just cruised our boat right into it. But pretty much, it's what you see. And so that's not... I think the fishermen would have noticed a feeding frenzy on one side of their boat. So that's what it wasn't. Jesus Christ just said, cast your net on the, other, on the right side. One more time. But notice it came with a promise. The, the command came with a promise. Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find. You will catch some. You will catch fish. Just cast your net on the other side. I'm pretty sure after a whole night they've not just fished on one side of their boat um, and just happened to miss the whole school. But he says, cast on the left side, on the right side now. Just cast your net over there one more time and you will find some. You will find what you're looking for. And they are responsive to that. And so they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. And this immediately brings to mind an event, doesn't it? This isn't the first time this has happened in their life. In fact, when they were first drawn to Jesus Christ, that kind of event happened, and they, their nets were starting to break. And they had to call other people to come out and help them because it was too much. And so one of them, and we can again conjure up which one of them said it, but one of them says, uh, well, we don't have to conjure up, sorry. The disciple whom Jesus loved, we don't, that's John himself says, it is the Lord. This shouldn't surprise you. John is the one that saw the empty tomb and believed. He didn't know what he believed, but he believed something. And whether he is saying that man over there is the Lord, or whether he's saying it's the Lord that has done this, uh, we can talk about. But he says it's the Lord, and, and as soon as Peter hears that, um, he's going he's gonna to tie up his garment, he's going to uh, gird himself up, and he's going to jump in the water and go for a swim. He's not going to wait. Uh, the boat coming in is going to take some time, um, because remember, they couldn't... It, the, Net was too full for the boat. And apparently there's no other boats around that they could call to come help them this time. Uh, the nets weren't breaking, so they're just going to drag it along. If you've never tried to row a boat with a 153 fish in the net, uh, well, I've never had to do that. Have you? I had to paddle a canoe once with three walleye dragging behind and swimming against me, and that was hard. So I don't know what it would be like. But it's too slow for Peter. Peter's the man of action. That's why they're out there on the boat. I'm not going to sit around here and do nothing. That's not honoring to God. And so I'm going to go out there. He can meet me out there as easily as he can meet me here in the living room. He can meet me out there in the lake. And in fact, he does. And so Peter, once he hears this declaration and, and 
well, some people think, well, John recognized Jesus, or but no, it was the revelation that this happened before, and this doesn't just this doesn't ever happen. There is no natural explanation for this, just like there's no natural explanation for what they saw in the empty tomb. So I have to believe something's going on. This is not mature belief. It is that believing in the signs, and he remembers that, and we say, it's the Lord, and Peter immediately has to go into action. Uh, and some people think, well, he was out there fishing naked. I don't think so. Uh, literally, this whole thing is about the same terminology is used when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, that he gird this apron around him. And it's the idea of he, he took his things, he, he tied them up around him so it would be free from his legs so he could swim. He had taken, uh, he had just, they'd been kind of chilly. If, you, if you're ever on the water at night, it's always chilly, I think. And he had, now he's going to gird up his, his clothing so he can swim, and he's just jumping in. And he's going to swim that 100 yards. And I'm pretty sure Peter was a pretty decent swimmer. He grew up on that lake all his life. He's going to get to the Lord. He can't wait. There's an expectation, anticipation. Uh, this is what we've been waiting for. This is not him... Uh, feeling guilt. I don't see no evidence of guilt that oh, I shouldn't be on this boat, I shouldn't be fishing. No, I just want to get to the Lord. I want to get there. Which means that he's been waiting all the time in Galilee for this event. He has been anticipating it the whole time. He has not given up on Jesus Christ. He has not uh, gone back to his old life. Uh, no, at the instant he realizes the Lord is there, he abandons the boat. He abandons this huge haul of fish. If that were his new hope, was back in his boat and back in his fishing, he'd have stayed in that boat and drugged that thing. But no, he abandons it all because that really wasn't his hope at all. He's just staying busy and active, doing what is good and right, while he waits for his Lord to come because his Lord said he would come. And brethren, we are in that condition today. We have a resurrected Lord who is alive and well, who said he would come back. And so we wait and we anticipate and we look forward to it. And do not confuse our earthly activity with changing our minds about following after Jesus. We follow him as we stay active, waiting for him. This is the Christian walk. This is what you do day by day. And this is why you worship in that activity and you can be waiting for the Lord, anticipating him, expecting him, looking forward to him, loving his appearance while you're at work. While you're dealing with kids, while you're doing laundry, while you're cooking and doing dishes, while you're doing all those normal things of life, oh, that we would do them in a worshipful sense. Peter here is not turning his back on the coming of the Lord. He is simply saying, I'm going to wait for him, and I'm going to stay busy while I'm waiting. And this is what the Christian life is. And so I'm not going to condemn Peter here in this passage, because I see in him what I see in myself, that I am waiting for the Lord. I cannot, I, 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 we say that I can't wait till he comes. Well, we must wait till he comes. What a silly thing to say, I can't wait. What are you going to do? Drop dead or what are you going to do? You have to wait. I'm going to wait till he comes. So what am I going to do? Am I going to sit around and say, what are you doing? Waiting for Jesus. Waiting for Jesus, that's it? No, you can wait for Jesus and honor God's word while you do it. This was the problem in one of the churches. And Paul has to tell them, hey, it, it's not good for you to sit around. That's not what this is about. You should be working, earning a living. You should be active while you're waiting for the Lord. And then, trust me, you're going to have a hard time out jumping me when the time comes. Peter's jumping out of the boat. Which is going to be something in a couple of weeks we're going to talk about a little bit more when G Peter and Jesus have their semi-private conversation with one another. And we're going to take a couple weeks on that too, but that, that's two weeks away. Um, but he's jumping out of that boat because he, 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 he has waited long enough. He has been waiting. He continues to wait. He never left off waiting. 
Oh, that we would never leave off. We would never get sidelined in thinking that this is the definition of who I am, but rather my waiting, this is what I do while I'm waiting for my Lord. That makes everything you do worshipful. If this is what you do simply to do it, and that is your definition of life, then you're miserable. You're a gerbil on a little wheel. Pointless. But if I'm doing these things while I'm waiting for my Lord to come, anticipating his coming, knowing that I also have a mission to do, and we're going to talk about that mission as well coming up a few weeks. But we have a mission, certainly, that we are engaged in as well. We have that activity of proclaiming God's word, of, of being a testimony in those workplaces. But it is plain from God's word that we are to stay active while we're waiting. And that we are waiting for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What do we do while we're waiting? What does it mean? What does it look like to be waiting? It means that all the time that I'm engaged in the things of this world, they are not my singular focus. As soon as Peter realizes that's the Lord, he is out of the boat, he is swimming on the, to the shore, he's going to Jesus Christ, none of these things matter, uh, even though they're going to count the fish later on, <laughs> right? 153 fish. Who, who counts fish? Well, fishermen do. That's a very fisherman-like thing to do. Uh, and by the way, Jesus asked them, well, what you got there? How did how'd we do? Do you think there's going to be an accounting when Jesus comes? I'm pretty sure the Bible says that. What have you been doing while I was gone? And yeah, I think doing the dishes matters. We're going to talk about that next week. I think preparing the meal is worship. You can complain about having to be in a kitchen during the heat of the summer over a hot stove, but that would be sin. And you've destroyed a time of worship and made it a time of sin. You can complain about doing the dishes, but then you've taken a time when you could have been worshiping by doing these necessary things, waiting for your Lord to come, and turn it into a time of sin. That's why the Bible says do all things without murmuring, without complaining. Because we recognize that I have to take care of this family, I have to take care of our physical needs while we wait for that blessed hope and glorious appearing. Peter wasn't abandoning Jesus. He was waiting for Jesus. He was where he was supposed to be, and he understood the need to stay busy and active. All the while, he was waiting. And as soon as he had any inclination that the Lord was somewhere, he wanted to be there. And all that we would go through this week and every week with all the mundane tasks of life. Because frankly, uh, these guys need to eat. They're there and they're extended, their, their community, they need to eat. They're no different than you. They weren't supposed to fast for till Pentecost, uh, sitting on their hands waiting. Um, but rather, they're going to stay active. And brethren, uh, we wait. We have every expectation. We, 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 we want the Lord's return. We, and I'm convinced that Peter wanted the Lord's presence there. And as soon as he had any idea, he was going to, I'm there. I'm not attached to this boat. I'm not attached to the net. I'm not attached to the fish. I'm not attached to any of that. My attachment is to Jesus Christ. And so don't get attached to your houses, your cars, your jobs, your bank accounts, your IRAs, your whatever. Wardrobe, spouses, children. I've heard all of those excuses why people didn't want to see the Lord. Yep, I've heard really old people, I hope I don't see the Lord until I get to see my great-grandchildren or grandchildren. or I hope I don't get see the, I hope the Lord doesn't come before I get, get to be married or before I get to finish this house. 
What are you saying? <laughs> you are guilty of something that Peter wasn't guilty of there. <laughs> he wasn't doing these things in lieu of a desire to see the Lord. He was doing these things until he could see the Lord. And as soon as he had that, bam, he was out of that boat. He, was, he didn't care. <laughs> He's going to swim right there. Oh, that we would have that spirit and that attitude in our waiting. That there is nothing I, I want more than the Lord today. But I'm going to wait in a godly way. I'm going to do righteousness. I'm going to walk in obedience. I'm going to do what the Bible tells me, that, uh, that if I don't take care of my family, I'm worse than an infidel. Um, that if I'm not this virtuous woman, what kind of woman am I then? If I'm not engaged in this activity uh, while I'm waiting for my Lord, uh, who am I? Am I really a follower of Jesus Christ, or am I this immature little bee believer that just believes some of it? Or is he my God, my Lord? As soon as John says, it's the Lord. And I don't know if he whispered or yelled, um, but Peter, as soon as he heard that, plunged into the sea, it says. The other disciples came in the boat, um, dragging the net with fish. They couldn't get in the boat. It was, the net was bigger than the boat, and the fish were more than the boat could hold. And they come into shore. Oh, that we would have Peter, Peter's spirit about us while we're waiting. See, this isn't about everything gone wrong. These guys are all confused and bewildered. These guys are being obedient, waiting. And they're being productive while they wait. Brethren, we are where they were. And if you think this isn't carried on after Pentecost, you are in error. Paul, what do we know him as? A missionary, a great preacher, evangelist, uh, starting churches all over. Well, is that all he did? No, we also call him a tent maker. That means he worked with his own hands to provide for his own needs while he was ministering. And he did that ministry while he was waiting for his Lord. All of it to the glory of God. If. We do it in the spirit that Peter had. As soon as the Lord's here, I'm out of here. There is nothing, nothing in this world that can hold me here. Nothing. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Lord, we thank you for this testimony of Peter and the other disciples waiting for you in obedience. Lord, help us to be an obedient people, that we be where you want us to be, that we stay productive and active, that we stay engaged in ministry, but that we do it all with a spirit of waiting for your return, that that is the, the overriding desire of our heart day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, that we would see you that we wait for that sound, that we look forward to it, that nothing and no one of this earth means more to us than you. Lord, our prayer is that you might find that spirit within us as we do all that is required of us to do this week. And forgive us where we have failed to do that in weeks prior or we have complained of the mundane where we have wrongly focused on the things of this world as our goal and even defining ourselves by them and Lord forgive us also for the times where we are unproductive while we are waiting, and using that as an excuse. Lord, we pray that we might follow the example set forward here in God's word. Lord, we wait for your coming. 
We're anxious for it. We want it to come. Let it be today, Lord. We see the world around us. We see the evidences of your soon return. And while we grow more and more excited about it, we also know that there is much work to be done, not only for the care of your people physically, but for the spread of the gospel, for ministry one to another. Lord, help us to keep our focus on your coming, on our ministry, and also on the mundane needs of this world. We might do it all to your honor, glory, and praise. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.